Welcome to Order From Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, we're going to talk about U.S. aid to Syria with two people intimately familiar with the issue. We have Daphne McCurdy, who has run American uh, aid programs in Syria and is now working as an analyst in the United States, and Sam Heller, an independent researcher based in Beirut, who's been also following the conflict in Syria since it began. Thank you two uh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be on. Daphne, you have recently published a report at the Century Foundation uh, about how to help Syria without helping Assad. And I want to ask you, what what is your main uh, contention about what kind of aid the United States should should give this country that it just spent upward of uh, nearly a decade trying to uh, uh, instill, change the regime of and uh, involved in a war uh, against the sitting president? Yeah. So um, thanks, Tanesky. Um So the United States has a rather um, extreme position uh, when it comes to economic assistance Um in regime-held Syria. So on the one hand, we have this policy of maximum pressure and economic coercion um, based primarily on a expansive sanctions regime and the withholding of reconstruction assistance. On the other end, we are the single largest donor of humanitarian assistance to Syria. And that includes, that assistance includes about a third going to um, regime-held areas. Um, and so that's a little known fact, by the way, to especially to critics of, of U.S. policy in Syria. They they focus a lot on the military aid to rebels and and often seem unaware of the huge humanitarian contribution. Right. That's that's a, a, absolutely right. And this is something that U.S. policymakers um, like Special Representative James Jeffrey like to point to that. Um, while we are trying to to target the murderous regime of Assad, we still support the people of Syria, and we do that through humanitarian assistance. Now, the problem with that, I think, is that um, humanitarian assistance, as it currently stands, is really skewed towards uh, an emergency response. So um, this is, you know, food baskets, shelter, um, water deliveries through water trucks, um, really sort of things that are intended to be short term. Um, but now that we are nine years into a civil war, um, really doesn't make sense to continue in the long term. Um, and so what I argue in this piece is that we need to start thinking about something that is um, certainly very short of reconstruction assistance to regime held areas of Syria, but also something that goes beyond the emergency response humanitarian assistance that we're providing to the country. Um, the challenge, of course, is that uh, the Syrian regime has up to this point co-opted most of humanitarian aid going to the country. And so to do this work would require us to really rethink the entire humanitarian assistance paradigm that currently exists in Syria. But just starting with with this kind of minimal emergency aid or uh, uh, what is it, stabilization aid that falls short of, of reconstruction. I want to I want to ask both of you uh, because you've both been very intimately familiar with every twist and turn of the last nine years. Why should the U.S. give any aid at all uh, at this stage with 
you know, its partners or the sides it's supporting, uh, having, uh, effectively lost, uh, either completely lost or about to lose, uh, the war. Why be, why be involved even to, to, to the, to the scope of $1? Um, well, sure. So I think that's a, I think that's a really, um, good question, Thanasi. And I think actually you're seeing increasingly, um, in Washington and on Capitol Hill, uh, people arguing even that we should cut off uh, even humanitarian assistance to Syria at this point, given the way that the regime has co-opted it. Um, I think that um, the reasons we should provide it uh, are there's both strategic and moral reasons. Um, on the the moral reasons, I would say, you know, after nine years of war and a regime that has just brutalized its citizenry, um, we as uh, a moral leader in the world, if, if one can argue that we still are that, have a responsibility to help the people of Syria who are not to blame for um, the government's egregious abuses. Um, and then on a more strategic level, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that it is not in the U.S. interest to have a country that is such a key to stability in the Middle East to continue to be destabilizing the region and a, a haven potentially for um, terrorists and other sorts of instability. Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that sounds about right. I mean, you know, this is a country uh, with whose government, uh, you know, the, the United States is, is, uh, is enemies, um, but uh, whose people are mostly blameless, uh, and then who are in urgent need, um, particularly now, uh, you know, after certainly, you know, over the course of this war, but then now as the, uh, uh, as the country's economic situation has deteriorated sharply, um, then I think that many and many more Syrians will need, uh, uh, an outside, uh, humanitarian, uh, intervention, uh, maybe just to stay alive. Uh, so I think that that is, uh, imperative. Um, but then additionally, you know, if we do look at kind of colder strategic rationales, either for uh, a continuing investment in humanitarian assistance, uh, something more than that, uh, or, you know, uh, kind of stepping out of the way as others, uh, you know, attempt to, uh, uh, to step in, uh, and to invest in uh, kind of uh, Syria broadly or in government held Syria in particular. Um, you know, I think that there is uh, there uh, that it's, it's not good for the United States. Uh, but even more than that, it's not good for uh, many of the United States uh, friends in Europe or in the region. Uh, to have a Syria that is a, uh, you know, a, a really wild humanitarian crisis, right? I mean, this is a, a force for, I mean, not only kind of human suffering, but additionally, uh, addition, like additionally uh, destabilization that will radiate beyond uh, serious borders. We're at a real transition point in the, 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 the structure here though. Cause when, you know, when we talk very vaguely about aid to Syria, you know, people who aren't, aren't familiar with, uh, with the details, you know, might think about sort of a traditional aid program, but for much of, of the period of this war, 
U.S. aid has gone to rebel-held areas. So when we say aid to Syria, it's really to anti-Assad areas of Syria that are locally controlled by forces that are not on Assad's side. Um, as Daphne mentioned, about a third of the aid was going into government areas, um, and that's sort of under protest. A lot of it essentially buttresses the regime. But you know, you could understand this aid to be, uh, in a way, part of an, ex- an extension of the of the campaign against Assad. Uh, now. The framework has decisively changed in that not only is Assad not going to fall, it seems, uh, but these areas that are not that are that are not under his control are shrinking. He's he's reasserting with you know with the help of Russia and Iran, he's reasserting central government control over these areas. So there's no longer either you know the the reality or or the fig leaf of saying well we're giving aid U.S. aid, but it's not really going to the Syrian government. Uh, as time goes on, it it really is going to go to the government. Um, and I think this conversation about aid is really inseparable from the conversation about uh, sort of infinite sanctions and the creation of pariah states, which has been a U.S. modus operandi for decades, and, and I would argue a really counterproductive one. Uh, it was our position towards Saddam's Iraq. It's now our position towards Iran, the sort of idea that you can uh you can sort of build an iron wall against some some country that's you defined as an enemy country and then have an infinite and escalating uh, campaign to isolate that country from aid, from the world economy, uh, from diplomacy. Um, and I see the questions about aid to Syria as as feeding right into a question of with Assad having consolidated his his power, are we going to move to a grudging, readmission of of Syria to to you know without having to embrace it uh, to international uh, uh, sort of modalities or are we going to try and uh, create around Syria the kind of of unending us backed isolation campaign that we've had uh, uh, against Iran well just so I, I think I would uh, I would dispute that characterization of U.S. aid over the course of the conflict. And I think here, let's, you know, let's kind of draw a, uh, a distinction between humanitarian aid and stabilization uh, assistance. Um, so the humanitarian aid is something that, uh, you know, kind of per humanitarian imperatives uh, uh, and then in line with humanitarian principles has been provided, has been supported by the U.S. and others. Um, throughout the whole of Syria, uh, whether in areas of government control or areas beyond it, um, kind of where uh, Damascus has obstructed the delivery of that aid to areas outside its, its control across the lines of the conflict, you know, then there's been a, an exceptional arrangement made uh, per this, uh, you know, this, this UN Security Council resolution that is being um, uh, kind of that is being reduced in pieces uh, by by Russian vetoes uh, that truncated uh, Damascus's sovereign control over its borders, uh, and then allowed UN agencies to support the delivery of humanitarian aid uh, cross border with uh, only notifications, not permissions, from Damascus. Um, whereas. Stabilization aid is something that was over, you know, the course of the war going exclusively to uh, 
uh, to areas outside Damascus' control. Because stabilization is not, it's not this kind of emergency life-saving aid. It is assistance for, uh, for municipal services, uh, for governance, for civil society. Um, there can be kind of overlaps and complementarities with uh, humanitarian aid. Um, but the aim here is to kind of to capacitate a, a political order. Um, and I think so that was the idea. Um, it's become less viable over time as many of these areas have, uh, you know, what had been opposition held enclaves have ceased to exist uh, or have come under the control of, you know, various you know, kind of political military forces uh, that cannot be that don't represent the you know the type of uh, political order that the U.S. can support uh, for various reasons. Um, so I think that kind of the the continuation of humanitarian aid, uh, whether kind of via cross border, uh, either under UN auspices uh, or via uh, like uh, NGOs. Uh, and then additionally, from Damascus, you know, via the, uh, the UN system, I mean, this would represent kind of the, the continuation of the status quo. Uh, and it's the, the minimum necessary to, to keep people alive as part of a, you know, as part of this emergency response. Um, I think that, you know, the, uh, the, the question is whether, I mean, so that's not efficient, it's not the best way to serve people. It's not a, a way to create a uh, a dignified uh, or like sustained way of life uh, for the recipients, the beneficiaries of this aid. Uh, and then that's where you see, I think, humanitarians themselves and some others, you know, urge, urge a, a sort of step change, uh, a graduation from humanitarian aid to, uh, you know, whether you call it stabilization or humanitarian plus or um, early recovery, uh, you know, some of these things that uh, have humanitarian benefit, but then kind of creep into this stabilization, semi-reconstruction space. I think that's the, that's what's kind of up for debate here. Uh, and then that is what, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is uh, adamant that that should not happen. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Welcome back. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm talking about U.S. aid to Syria with Daphne McCurdy, uh, who used to actually supervise some of the U.S. aid programs in Syria and is now uh, working as an analyst in the United States and Sam Heller, a Beirut-based analyst who has been following the conflict in Syria in excruciating detail uh, since it began. Thank you both uh, for joining us. Daphne, tell us uh, what, in your view, is the right is the right kind of 
uh, of aid. You know, we just heard a sort of explanation for the the different the different categories and you know stabilization instead of just emergency humanitarian. At this juncture, at this new stage, what would you want to see the United States be investing its money and capability in for Syrians? Yeah. So first of all, Sam, that was um, a great overview of these rather nuanced distinctions. Um, And I think it's one that even practitioners themselves sometimes get tripped over. So um, thank you for for presenting it so clearly. Um, I would uh, agree with what Sam, the way Sam laid it out, which is that um, the humanitarian assistance currently being provided to regime-held areas is really meant to be emergency response. It's supposed to be life-saving and for the short term. And so now that we have almost entered a decade of conflict, I think from just a purely technical standpoint, um, there are compelling reasons to be thinking about um, about assistance that goes beyond just this emergency response that can provide um, a more sustainable pathway for um, ordinary Syrians to get on with their lives and not be dependent on aid. Um, And, you know, I think one thing that's always worth remembering is that prior to the conflict, Syria was a middle-income country. And so the notion that, you know, Syrians are now reliant on cash handouts and humanitarian assistance, um, I mean, I think that that's something that uh, no one ever wants to be reliant on, but I think is particularly jarring and and, um, traumatic for Syrians who used to live a upper-middle-income or middle-income lifestyle. Um, So just from a purely technical standpoint, I think it's important for us to at the very least start having the conversation, because right now we're not even doing that start having that conversation about what assistance that goes beyond emergency relief could look like. Now, we also obviously, assistance doesn't exist in a vacuum, and you can't think about it without the political ramifications. And this is where I think it gets complicated, Um, particularly at a time, as Sam noted, um, the regime and the Russians are trying to cut back on uh, avenues for cross-border assistance um, and find ways to cut off assistance to opposition-held areas, I think politically it would be really damaging to, at this moment, um, increase the types of assistance we're providing into regime-held Syria without also demanding dramatic changes in the operating environment, because the regime would capitalize on that as a political win. Um, But I do think we need to grapple with the reality that we can't just continue providing emergency assistance. And we need to start thinking through ways that um, we do expand the types of assistance we're using while also trying to find ways to um, leverage our assistance to demand reforms in the assistance paradigm. And that's something that I, I don't think we, as both the U.S. and Western donors more generally, have done enough of in um, regime held areas. I, th- I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a sort of fantasy to, I mean, one, we know that this regime is quite skillful at self-preservation and at uh, harnessing international aid for its own good. Uh, so it's, it's wishful thinking in my view to imagine that a scenario in which the regime somehow uh, 
relinquishes some of its hard hard won and hard reasserted sovereignty uh, in exchange for, for for some kind of aid. Um, and uh, and and the second thing that I think is wishful thinking, uh, in particular by the United States, is the idea that they can accomplish through a, the leverage of aid what they couldn't accomplish uh, through outright. Uh, war and conflict. Uh, so in in my view, it, it, the, the, the real options on the table are giving some form of aid that, that the regime will, in your words, Daphne, y- use to claim some kind of win. And they, and they, they will, right? Any kind of Western aid that flows into regime controlled areas of Syria, no matter how it's framed and, and articulated, is going to give some amount of legitimacy and political win uh, to the regime. And, you know, we're not operating in a vacuum. We're operating in a, in a history where the United States for its entire existence has had relationships with problematic states. And there's, you know, there's any number of uh, U.S. aid recipients, whether they receive military aid or, or non-military aid, who were f- deeply flawed actors. Um, and, you know, the, 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 that's gone out of vogue uh, in, I'd say, in the post-9-11 era uh, to be open about this, even though the U.S. has not ever stopped doing this, you know, aid to Egypt, aid to, uh, you know, partners like Iraq and, and you know, on to a very long list of, of troubled uh, actors. And, and, I, and I think that it's really notable in this debate that um, people who try to work on how to how to function in that gray area are you know either accused of being Assad apologists or of you know somehow undermining U.S. interests and and it seems to me you know that 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 is actually where the where the policy exists it's, it exists in that liminal area um, and uh, and we're somehow punished for speaking publicly about you know how do you do X, Y, and Z in Syria, knowing that, yes, Assad will benefit some, and we really don't like Assad, uh, but also we really don't want to create yet another vacuum uh, for U.S. relationships in a strategically crucial area, uh, and, and, and we need to acknowledge that it's actually in the U.S. interest to have relationships with even relatively weak donor recipients and, and you know, people who are are compromised, but also willing to cooperate with the U.S. on some some limited limited aid, um, and I think that is the the sort of umbrella of of a of a of a sort of realistic conversation about U.S. aid. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and um, you know, I, a common refrain you hear now um, in Washington policy circles is that about policy to Syria is that we have to better match means and ends. Um, And when it comes to assistance, I think, Finassi, your point is absolutely right, that we can't expect assistance to achieve what, um, you know, a minimal uh, military intervention um, and other course of tools has not been able to. Um, And so I think that we need to be intellectually honest um, about what assistance could provide, and it's it's very minimal. Um, and I and and to me, um, you know, what it does provide um, from a moral standpoint is it it makes life marginally better for for ordinary Syrians, um, and it alleviates some of their suffering. And then from a strategic level, I think it allows us to keep relationships. Um, with the people of Syria and, and um, you know, not fall into the trap that you uh, pointed out, which is that we 
equate the population of a country with um, a regime that we do not like. Um, and I think it's it's taking um, what I refer to um, in the paper as a lifeline approach, which is that we recognize that we are able to achieve very little um, currently, but we keep these relationships and these channels open because we don't know what could happen in the future. And it's, it's, it's helpful for us to have nodes of engagement that go beyond um, the governments and the regimes of adversarial states. We'll be back in a minute. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation at our website, tcf.org. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I've got Daphne McCurdy and Sam Heller on the WhatsApp. Uh, thank you both for being on the podcast. Uh, I want to turn now to the question of sanctions um, and and the, the sanctions context for this discussion of USAID. Can you, maybe Sam, you want to take this first. Uh, can you tell us how the recently passed CSER Act uh, constrains or, or shapes the environment for, for U.S. activities in, in Syria? And, and, and also, what is the sort of uh, cascading possibility of, of, of other sanctions that are, that are on the table? I mean, I think we can talk about the, the provision of, uh, of U.S. Uh, or U.S. support for humanitarian aid inside Syria, the kind of this notional uh, investment in something uh, more than that, whether kind of stabilization or fuller uh, reconstruction um, or, you know, kind of uh, disengagement, uh, you know, a choice to uh, not to act, not to, uh, to be involved. Um, but I think that, you know, if we're talking about the some of the, the main ways that the U.S. is now involved in Syria, it's not just in terms of what it is or isn't doing, it's also in terms of uh, what it is actively discouraging others from doing. Uh, so this is, I think, you know, one of the key U.S. interventions in the Syrian scene currently. Uh, and then uh, the what is this? Passed. Is this U.S. pressure stopping Europe, uh, European countries from from doing more long term rebuilding aid? Is that is that the kind of thing we have in mind here? Well, I think that. Um, Let's see. So there is uh, there are sanctions, um, which it sounds like after certainly after the pass uh, the the passage of the Caesar Act uh, are many and intimidating. Um, they are extraterritorial. They apply to uh, you know to non-American persons, uh, and then you know seem likely to to kind of additionally dissuade uh, non-Americans from investing in you know in sectors. Uh, like oil and gas, uh, like the reconstruction uh, of this destroyed country, um, or you know, in any sort of uh, a transaction deal that might uh, somehow bring them into contact with uh, like the Syrian state and its institutions. Um, so that is part of it. But then it is you know it is additionally linked to a uh, 
the really, you know, vigorous campaign of uh, political pressure uh, to, you know, discourage um, countries that might otherwise, uh, you know, view it as as kind of beneficial in interested terms uh, or in humanitarian terms. Uh, to uh, you know, to invest in what is now partially a, a post-conflict Syria. Um, so that includes uh, regional states uh, who are inclined to uh, you know to reopen uh, to Damascus and then to the kind of majority of Syrian people that are under the Syrian government's control, uh, as well as you know a lot of the the private economic actors um, that. Absent this kind of sanctions chill, this intimidation, you know, might uh, uh, might be the ones to actually, you know, do much of the rebuilding of the country at like a kind of a, a smaller, more specific level. Um, and then this is, you know, this is something the 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 demarches that the. Uh, U.S. State Department has sent out. I mean, they they haven't been shy about it. Uh, I remember there was one instance in which uh, <laughs> there was a, a hiccup in, in U.S.-Armenian relations uh, because the Armenians uh, had assented to a to a Russian request uh, to send a uh, a team of medics uh, to uh, I think Aleppo which has a substantial Syrian-Armenian population. Uh, and then they were, uh, you know, they were blindsided by what was, you know, an extremely vigorous and negative U.S. reaction. Um, and then this, you know, is part of a relationship that has very little to do with Syria, you know, that has many other, you know, aspects to it. Um, and then it's that kind of kind of, Pressure and you know even bordering on intimidation that's been brought to bear on uh, you know on many countries, um, including uh, you know including regionals who are you know one or two borders removed from uh, from Syria and then who do not want to see this place continue to be impoverished and dangerous. Um, but you know with uh, U.S. policy the way it is, I think have few options. Well, and Daphne, when you think about a, you know, let's say there's a Biden administration uh, uh, reevaluating Syria policy uh, in six months time, uh, are, are, the, are the options you recommend in this paper going to be executable uh, in, in light of, of the Caesar Act and, and, and the other sanctions that are out there? Are these, are these like legally permitted or would there have to be some kind of modification or rollback of, of the sanctions regimen, uh, to have even these sort of modest, uh, and symbolic, uh, kinds of, of, of aid partnerships that you, that you propose? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in terms of strictly legal terms, um, this sort of work should still be possible even with a sanctions regime in place um, for two reasons. One, there is a humanitarian waiver in place with um, all sanctions to Syria to allow humanitarian work. Um, so when we talk about things like humanitarian plus um, or early recovery work, because that still falls under 
the humanitarian rubric, you could still technically do it. And then some of the other sorts of work that I think would fall more in the stabilization bucket, like supporting civil society or supporting um, very local groups um, to, to do social cohesion work, for example, because that would not in any way benefit the regime, it is still technically possible to do it um, even with sanctions in place. Now, the problem is that even with this humanitarian waiver in place, there is an issue of um, what some call overcompliance, where the the paperwork required is so onerous and burdensome to demonstrate um, that what you are doing is indeed within uh, the confines of um, the legislation, that people just and entities just opt out of doing any of this work in the first place. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing that would need to change is just in terms of the rhetoric, um, just making it clear that this is the type of work that would be welcomed under a new administration. Um, I think that a long way because, uh, as Sam noted earlier, um, this administration has been very clear that it is um, vehemently opposed to anything that goes beyond emergency humanitarian assistance. There's a there's a sort of conceptual shift that I think is is really necessary, which is that the U.S. ought, ought to move away from uh, its obsession with regime change and regime behavior change uh, and move more in the direction of containing outcomes it doesn't want. Uh, so, you know, instead of trying, instead of trying to make the Syrian regime behave in a certain way or the Iranian regime behave in a certain way, it can spend its, its energy, let's say containing the fallout of regional militia actors or the, you know, this humanitarian spillover um, and remove this whole set of, of practices that are based on what is, you know, ultimately wherever you fall on it, a unworkable uh, goal of forcing hostile regimes to, to, cha to change their behavior under, under duress. Uh, and, and I do think of Syria as a major test case. I mean, we have, we have in the, in the region, two different paradigms, uh, for, for, you know, sort of long-term U S relations, one being Lebanon where, uh, you know, reluctantly maybe, and with some problems, the U S continues to have a lot of relationships institutionally, uh, with a state that is dominated by, but not wholly synonymous, uh, to Hezbollah. Um, and the other, the other extreme is Iran where, you know, not only does the U S try to isolate every actor within Iran, it will, you know, target and assassinate Iranian officials in U S friendly countries. And it pressures third countries to, uh, uh, to do, you know, to sort of minimize or, or take active, minimize involvement or take active part in these isolating, uh, uh, strategies. And my concern is that politically any new administration in the U S uh, will just find it easier to continue on this path than to, you know, than to be a regime, uh, than to be, sorry, an administration that looks like it's rolling back sanctions against war criminals, you know, which ultimately, uh, the Caesar sanctions are trying to punish, genuine war criminals and, you know, hopefully nobody's in favor of rewarding war criminals. Uh, and, and that structure, I think makes it a political no win, uh, for, for people who want to find ways to engage, uh, Syria. Do you guys, do you two want to end on, on some thoughts about how to, how to square 
that conundrum and and how to uh, find ways to I- engage Assyria that is uh, for the foreseeable future going to continue to be ruled by the Assad family? Yeah, I mean, well, if I can say, I mean, so I would I would emphasize that you know U.S. policy currently, uh, even as as it has uh, moved away from uh, the uh, the support that was provided. Uh, Overtly and overtly previously uh, to the uh, to the armed insurgency uh, against uh, you know against the Syrian state, uh, it is nonetheless still a policy of of intervention that is aimed at regime change. Um, I don't think that you know we should kind of fool ourselves into thinking otherwise. And then certainly you know the language that we hear now. Uh, from U.S. officials about seeking, uh, you know, changes in behavior instead of changes in regime is uh, uh, fantastical. You know, it is non-credible. You know, this is a a policy that through kind of non-military means, you know, again, primarily these these economic and and political tools uh, aims to topple uh, the Syrian regime uh, or to, you know, kind of make it so burdensome on its Russian ally that, uh, you know, that, that Russia will somehow intervene to, uh, to dislodge it. So it's, a, it's an interventionist policy, even if it, you know, uh, even under a, like a maintenance of the status quo uh, into a new administration. And it is one that I think is, uh, you know, arguably uh, actively destabilizing for, for Syria and for the region. Um, you know, it's something that, uh, that it, again is going to kind of send shock waves outward, uh, including into us friends like Jordan. Um, and I think that, uh, part of the problem here though, is that, uh, you know, the, the U S bears very few of the costs, uh, because, you know, we are, uh, I mean, we, as the United States, not me. Physically, I am next door to Syria. I'm in Lebanon, but uh, you know we don't the, hold you responsible for U.S. <laughs> policy, Sam. Well, you know, yeah, no, I mean, certainly not. You know, not under, uh, yeah, uh, with these people. Um, but uh, no, I mean, you know, the, the United States is on the other side of an ocean, uh, so it it feels very few of the destabilizing consequences of Syria's war. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, some of many of the, the U.S.'s most important allies, including in Europe, uh, including in the region, you know, for them, this is very immediate. They are, you know, intensely, maybe existentially affected by, you know, what is happening in Syria, uh, you know, and by, a, you know, a, a policy of uh, political and economic strangulation that, you uh, I think for, you know, for Americans, it's probably pretty easy to just kind of put on autopilot um, or to maintain for these sort of symbolic emotive ends, you know, regardless of what it uh, what it achieves practically. Daphne, close, closing thoughts on on how to square our uh, practical uh, aims with our, our moral uh, values. Yeah, well, I I agree with Sam um, that I think um, despite the rhetoric, the the current policy is one of um, even though we call it behavior change, it is behavior change that is so existential 
that it effectively amounts to regime change. And um, the fact is that the current policy is not working. The status quo is unsustainable. Um, and on the current trajectory, Syria will continue to be a failed state that continues to destabilize its neighbors. And so I think the way we square the circle on a new administration is to say, um, you know, we need to move beyond what I see as like a very polarized debate when it comes to Syria. It's either regime change or complete disengagement. Um, and is there something in the middle that we can do to achieve a much more limited set of outcomes that still advance U.S. interests of, of bringing stability to this country while also alleviating human suffering. Um, and, and I think that begins with a paradigm shift of recognizing that um, the Assad regime is staying in power and uh, what are the ways that we can extract the, the minimal tools of leverage we have, because we don't have maximal tools here, to get a um, limited set of wins, um, whether they are um, ways to improve the aid paradigm or there are um, ways to ensure that the UN, human, uh, uh, UN Commissioner for Refugees can enter the country and, and help protect returnees. Um, I think we need to be thinking much more minimally, uh, given the uh, minimal tools that we have at our disposal. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I mean, I'm, I'm someone who uh, has really changed over time in my view of what's possible and what and what we should focus on. And I think there was a time uh, to really prioritize uh, human rights and, and, and the desire of people who wanted to be free of Bashar al-Assad's rule. Uh, and that didn't that didn't work out, um, and we can't just cling to cling to our 2016 uh, uh, views in 2020. Uh, and I really hope that that other other people, decision makers in Washington, in Europe, uh, in the region, are are able to uh, adjust. Daphne McCurdy and Sam Heller, thank you both so much for coming on Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's. International Affairs Podcast, and uh, really enjoyed your thoughts. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. Thanks. It was great just chatting with you, Thanasi and Sam. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the International Affairs Podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.